This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at Zen Mountain Monastery. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of the Zen Center of New York City. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon. This is Case 31 from Transmission of the Light. Senkan said to Zen Master Wiku, I am riddled with sickness. Please absolve me of my sin. Wike, Wike, Wike said, Bring me your sin, and I will absolve you. After a long pause, Senkin said, When I look for my sin, I cannot find it. Wiki said, I have absolved you. You should live by the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And Senkin said, Today, for the first time, I have realized that the essence of sin is not inside nor outside, and not in between. So it is also of mind, Buddha and Dharma, are not separate either. So this koan is dated, it took place in 551 AD, and it's early in the history of Zen in China. Um, Bodhidharma brought Zen, according to historical legend, uh, from India to China. He transmitted to Weiku, and Weiku's transmission to Sengen is in this case, or at least his awakening is in this case. So most sources say that uh, that's, uh, Senken had leprosy. That was his illness. And leprosy was a greatly feared disease, uh, known to be communicable. And without treatment, uh, really until the beginning part of the 20th century. Uh, it's caused by a bacteria uh, similar to TB, and it affects the parts of the body that are cooler uh, hands, feet, nose, ears, uh, parts of the face. And. Um, the bacteria cause uh, loss of sensation in the affected areas, and they eat away at the skin. And the areas become ulcerated, and they start to disintegrate, and literally body parts fall off. So it's a horrific disease. It's painless, but it's horrific and completely disfiguring. Uh, when I was in medical school, um, as part of a rotation in a clinic, I was able to assist in the treatment of several patients with Hansen's disease or leprosy. Um, they had come from a, uh, a different country, poor, and um, although their disease was not terribly advanced, it was impressive and dramatic uh, to see this infection. And one can begin to imagine how, when it was much more widespread, how feared it was. And the common understanding at that time was that those who had leprosy were paying for past sins, terrible sins, since the disease was considered so terrible. And so this koan brings up what is sickness. And... Um, kind of as a sidelight, when I began to think about this koan and sit down in front of my computer to begin to write it up. And I got to this part, what is sickness? And did it occur to me that uh, I need to consult the Vimalakirti Sutra, which the essence of it is, what is sickness? And I found the part I wanted, and I was struggling with getting it into my talk. I like to actually have it in the body of the talk. And as I'm doing that, an email appeared from Shoan, and it had exactly, precisely the section that I was trying to get into my talk, 
which she had copied and sent out to all the seniors uh, for the meeting last Saturday. I wasn't at that meeting, and I, I actually don't know if that was addressed, but my guess is because the, as I'm about to read some of it, it was so cogent to what we're studying. Uh, so it was one of those interesting coincidences of how the Dharma can work. So what is sickness? So Vimala Kirti asks, is asked, how should a bodhisattva console another bodhisattva who is sick? And Vimala Kirti said, they should tell them that the body is impermanent, but should not exhort them to renunciation or disgust. Can you feel this answer? The body is impermanent, sure. But don't fall into exhorting them to renouncing the body or disgust for the body. So can you see where this is coming from? Can you see the two sides? And I'm going to be selective in what I read because there's too much of it, but... um, that the body is selfless, but that living beings should be developed. Again, two sides. Selfless, but living beings, us, should be developed. The bodhisattva should encourage their empathy for all living beings on account of their own sickness their remembrance of suffering experienced from beginningless time and their consciousness of working for the welfare of living beings. Sometimes there's a tendency to think of our suffering, our karma, if you will, as coming just from a personal perspective. And in a way that's true, but also in a way it's easy to Um, overlook what's called generational karma, the karma of being in your particular body, in your particular gender, nationality, place, time. Um, And so remembrance of suffering experiences from beginningless time. It's a lot of karma that we carry in our body. And I'm not classifying that as good or bad, although this koan takes up sickness. And I'm not even classifying sickness as good or bad, but there's a tendency to do that. So to relate to our own sickness and to relate to the remembrance of suffering experience from beginningless time, kind of, there's a pause there of what is the connection of all of the karma of all beings to this body and mind now. So Manjusri, who is the person, I guess, asking the questions, asked, Noble Sir, how, does, how should a sick bodhisattva control their own mind? And Vimala Kirti says, Manjushri's sick bodhisattva should control their own mind with the following consideration. Sickness arises from total involvement in the process of misunderstanding from beginningless time. It arises from the passions that result from unreal mental constructions, and hence, ultimately, nothing is perceived which can be said to be sick. Unreal mental constructions. I'm sure none of you have ever had unreal mental constructions. But perhaps, perhaps you've had a few. I mean, that's, that's our mind, as we usually understand our mind. Pictures of reality. Not the reality itself, but pictures of reality. Thoughts of reality. Feelings of reality. Where is the reality? What is the reality? So in which nothing is perceived which can be said, said to be sick 
So why is that? He goes on, the body is the issue of the four main elements, and in these elements there is no owner and no agent. There is no self in this body. And except for arbitrary insistence on self, ultimately no I, which can be said to be sick, that can be apprehended. Therefore, thinking I should not adhere to any self, and I should rest in the knowledge of the root of illness. I mean, we think I all the time. I mean, we're all self-centered. We're all self-referential. That's how our mind works. It's, it's a given. And here, Vimalakirti is acknowledging this, and it's important that he's acknowledging this. This is the reality that we are mainly experiencing, that we're living out of. And there's a truth to that. Yet, he's also pointing out the encouragement to understand deeply what this I is or is not. And that's what we're doing here. We're investigating what this I is or what we are not. He goes on, they should abandon the concept of themselves as a personality and the conception of themselves as a thing. And I just want to pause here. The conception of themselves as a thing. So I think we mainly do conceive of ourselves as a thing. I'm here with this body, and, you know, God knows my knees are killing me, and my body's doing what it does as a body of this time and place and age, and yours too. That's the thing. So they should abandon the concept of themselves as a personality and the conception of themselves as a thing, thinking this body is an aggregate of many things when it is born. Only things are born. When it ceases, only things cease. These things have no awareness or feeling of each other. When they are born, they do not think, I am born. Meaning our pieces, the parts that make us up, our skandhas, don't think, I am born. When they cease, they do not think, I cease. Furthermore, they should understand thoroughly the conception of themselves as a thing by cultivating the following consideration. Just as in the case of conception of self... So the conception of thing is also a misunderstanding. And this misunderstanding is also a grave sickness. I should free myself from this sickness and should strive to abandon it. So this body is an aggregate of many things. And we're asked to investigate What is this body? What is this self? What is this personality? We all have a distinct personality. Every person in this room is a person. And as we look around the room, we can identify that person. We can identify aspects of their personality. We can give it a name. So you're a thing. I gotcha. So what is the elimination of this sickness? Because Vimalakirti is calling this a sickness. It is the elimination of egotism and possessiveness. What is the elimination of egoism and possessiveness? It is the freedom from dualism. And what's the freedom from dualism? We know that each statement is going to set up the next statement as the investigation goes on. 
Just as each breath that we take sets up the next breath. Just as each thought that we take sets up the next thought. What's freedom from dualism? It is the absence of involvement with either the external or the internal. So, think about the internal. We're sitting in Zazen and our mind is internalizing, producing, measuring, thinking about, recalling, wishing, doing all the mind stuff that we all know about. What's external? All this out there, everything that's not me. Seems pretty clear. But that is two things, isn't it? Shugen Roshi pointed out pretty clearly in a number of times yesterday in his teaching. He quoted Daito Roshi saying, in one there is many, in two there is no duality. How is that? In one there is many, in two there is no duality. Can you see the relationship to that, to the thing we recite all the time? Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Emptiness is empty, and yet it can only manifest as form. Form, too, is empty. Because in one, there are many, and in two, there is no duality. In all of the forms that we see, there's no duality from the perspective of your own fundamental mind. It's whole. It's complete. That can only be because of emptiness. Now, let's not get confused here. In our practice, we're cultivating our own direct insight into emptiness. And yet, that insight into emptiness presents to our consciousness as form. It's just the way it is. What is the absence of involvement with either external or internal? It is non-deviation, non-fluctuation, and non-distraction from equanimity. What is equanimity? It's the equality of everything, from self to liberation. Why? Because both self and liberation are empty, are void. Self and liberation as such, are things. They're empty. And yet, there is self, and there is liberation. In one, emptiness, voidness, there are many. And Vilma Kirti explains this. How can both be void, self and liberation? As verbal designations, they both are void, and neither is established in reality. Therefore, one who sees such a quality makes no differentiation between sickness and voidness, emptiness. Their sickness is itself emptiness, and that sickness as emptiness is itself void. So this is challenging, and also a bit dangerous, if not very dangerous. And that's happened within Buddhism. You know, everything is void, everything is empty. So there's implications in that statement. Does anything matter? If everything is empty, nothing matters. If your grandmother was sick, 
and you went to console her, would you say, don't worry, Grandma. I know you're dying, but everything is void. It's okay. That wouldn't be very helpful. But also look at the initial question, because that's crucial. How should a bodhisattva console another bodhisattva who is sick? And that's at the heart of this. Now, there's a lot of ways to understand a bodhisattva and who is a bodhisattva, and the term is used in a lot of different ways. But I'm understanding it here as someone who is truly dedicated to the bodhisattva path, who's truly practicing. What does that mean, truly practicing? What it means to me, in the most personal sense, is that I'm doing the best I can to take whatever comes my way, be it you, if you come my way, or your words, or criticism, or generosity, to understand it as dharma, as practice. So to not get caught in those things that I really appreciate it and at some level really want. I would love to be praised universally. Great. Or criticism. I hate criticism. I don't want to be criticized. And not be caught by that. But it's more than not be caught. Not being caught is the realm of practice. To see through those two imposters that they are not a thing. They're not an idea. They're empty. They're a concept of any presence whatsoever. And yet there they are. Deal with it. And you have to deal with it. And it's important to see how you deal with it. And so we have to be careful not to dismiss emptiness which is only one side. Form is empty, but empty is form. And we live in this world of form. And yet, in this practice, we are cultivating insight into emptiness, into the absolute nature of your own being. And we're doing that breath by breath. We're not doing it intellectually. You can study this intellectually and That happens in Zen and in Buddhism. It's happening during the Sangha. And that's very helpful. And this sutra is very helpful in laying it out. But ultimately, what's transformative in your life is to encounter it in the practice for yourself. So how do you encounter emptiness when emptiness itself is empty of emptiness? There's no such thing as emptiness. How are you going to encounter that? Hold that thought. <laughs> but I want to repeat this. How can both be void? As verbal designations, they both avoid self and liberation. And neither is established in reality. Therefore, one sees such equality one who sees such a quality makes no difference between sickness and, and emptiness. The sickness is itself emptiness. And that sickness, as emptiness, is itself empty. And yet you're sick. How do you deal with that? I mean, my knee is definitely killing me. How do I deal with Well, one of the ways I deal with it is sometimes I suffer. Isn't that interesting? And in my suffering, I'm practicing that. Well, you all know how to practice suffering. You're sitting sashen. <laughs> you have a period after period to practice it. You're looking at your own mind. And in recognizing your own suffering, in recognizing the suffering of infinite, the infinite suffering of living beings, the Bodhisattva correctly contemplates these living beings 
and resolves to cure all sicknesses. So that's one side, right? Recognizing all the suffering. You can start with your own. In fact, you should start with your own. So instead of retreating from our suffering, you know that last period of the night? You know that last period where you say, well, this period, I'm here, I'm tired, I'm just going to drift off into fantasy land, and bong, and sentient beings, and hey, we're there. That's our suffering. So he says, as for those living beings, there's nothing to be applied, and there is nothing to be removed. One only has to teach them the Dharma for them to realize the basis from which sickness arises. And this is at the heart of it. Of course, no one is teaching anybody anything. So how do we offer the Dharma? when somebody's sick. Remember again, this is being directed for bodhisattvas by bodhisattvas. So how do we practice that? How do we turn whatever comes our way? Because, you know, sickness is coming. It's coming. And if you don't buy that, open your goddamn eyes and look. It's all around you. That's what Vimala Kirti noted. I am sick because all beings are sick. I am suffering because all beings are suffering. And yet, there's nothing to be applied. So you can fill in the word fixed for that. There's nothing to be fixed. And there's nothing to be removed. But there is something to realize. The Dharma and the basis from which sickness arises are delusions. You know, I say this often because it's so relatable and I, and I think it's an entry point for people because we chant the Heart Sutra every day. And so the section that brings it most alive for me. No old age and death and no end to old age and death. No suffering, no cause of suffering. No extinguishing, no path, no wisdom, no gain. Negating everything. Everything is empty. There are things. We understand there are things. We know there are things. All those things that are no, the suffering, the path, the wisdom, gaining, old age, death, they're there. And yet they're empty. So seeing into that, no gain, seeing into that, no gain, emptiness, and thus the bodhisattva lives prajnaparamita. That's not sitting on a cushion. might be sitting on a cushion, but basically it's pointing to the bodhisattva life. Seeing into the emptiness of all things. So this is our work. This is what we're doing here. Not in any way that makes it a thing. So we, we ultimately can't grasp this and hold it and make it our own, make it a thing. There's no thing here. And there's no one to thing it. Although we know we try, don't we? I've told this story before. Once with Daito Roshi, I had a small little breakthrough in Dogsan. And I was very excited. And he looked at me and he said, don't, first, don't get excited. And second, don't attach to it. And then he goes, you're going to attach to it. Doesn't matter. And he rang me up. I mean, that's the way it is, right? In the midst of seeing something, clearly, already it's a thing. So 
Bodhisattva lives Prajnaparamita. With no hindrance in the mind, no hindrance, therefore, no fear. No hindrance because there are no things to be hindrances. And then he goes on. What's the basis of suffering, sickness? It's object perception. Insofar as apparent objects are perceived, they are the basis of sickness. Of course, when we're sick, we perceive that we're sick, and that's an object that's apart from us. I hear my knee over there. Shit, it hurts. I wish it didn't hurt. And that's the least of it. I mean, consider just in this room how people may be suffering from various sicknesses, mental, physical, hearing, eyes, old age, many other aspects of our life. So what is the basis? It's object perception. And so far as apparent objects are perceived, they are the basis of sickness. How we see things and understand things are the basis of our sickness. What, what things are perceived as object? objects? The three realms of existence are perceived as objects. What is the thorough understanding of the basic apparent object? It is non-perception as no objects ultimately exist. So this is what we've been studying. This is a, a presentation of the Four Noble Truths, of the Eightfold Noble Path. And it's, a, it's also pointing at the 12 link, links of dependent origination with the resultant endless karma and suffering and sickness. And so the sick bodhisattva should tell, tell themselves, just as my sickness is unreal and non-existent, so the sickness of all living beings are unreal and non-existent. One side. Through such consideration, they arouse great compassion towards all living beings. The other side. Seeing it's empty, meaning whole. It can only be whole if it's empty. The form of wholeness is empty. The emptiness exists as the form of wholeness each in its individual aspect that we so quickly label as things. It's not possible for one who themselves is bound to deliver others from their bondage, but one who is liberated is able to liberate others from their bondage. Therefore, the bodhisattva should participate in liberation and should not participate in bondage. Well, yeah, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing to the best of our ability, individually and collectively. Doing our best to not be bound so that we can help others not be bound. Recognizing our own being bound. And out of that comes great compassion. So, what's going on here? What does this koan have to do with your life, your sickness? Bill McCurdy says, I am sick because all beings are sick. Why are we sick? Well, everybody knows the answer to that. The three poisons. Greed, anger, and delusion. We've spent the whole long looking at this. And it's helpful to keep in mind how these poisons so subtly live within us and how subtle our dualistic tendencies are 
to divide up and see things from one side or the other side. And how this plays out in our thoughts, in our speech, in our actions, in our desires. And the heaviness, the weight of our karma, you know, that produces each of our own personal personalities, which we have shaped through our life, mainly to protect ourselves from things, from non-existent things, but things nevertheless. So mind moves, thoughts occur, desires and grasping, and then many subtle forms arise, and our ignorant patterns persist. But we can study this. We can understand this by our study and by direct experience. And we can open our awareness and deepen the subtlety and the karma of our long-held patterns can be seen into. This morning, I think this morning, Shoan offered the encouragement that when, I'm not using her exact words, but when our mind begins to still a bit, we can see that even the slightest thought is a movement away from our present moment of being alive. Now, when we're not in that place, our mind is filled with thoughts. And those thoughts are karmically heavily conditioned. You know, buy one delusion and get the second one free. You know, just pay postage. You know, it's, we're filled with it. So we have to study this. And understand by our study and by direct experience, we're opening our awareness to it. It's a process. It's a long-term process. Many years ago, Shishin Wick Roshi, um, our Dharma uncle, contemporary and Dharma brother, Daito Roshi, and a friend, a personal friend as well as a friend of the MRO, uh, came here and gave a show on a similar koan. And he could, there's four or five koans like this. Bodhidharma sat facing the wall. The second ancestor, Wike, standing in the so- snow, cut off his arm and said, your, dis- your disciple's mind is not yet at peace. I beg you, Master, give it rest. Bodhidharma said, bring, me your, mi- bring your mind to me and I'll put it at rest. The ancestor said, I have searched for the mind exhaustively, but have never been able to find it. Bodhidharma said, I put it at rest for you. And I remember the first time I encountered this koan, I said, you know, what the heck's going on? How did he put it at rest? He didn't do anything. Bodhidharma, why is he saying I put it at rest for you? So we're moving from a story about peaceful mind My mind is not yet at peace. A story about that. To the actuality of a peaceful mind. That's what this describes. A movement of a story of a peaceful mind. To the actuality of a peaceful mind. Encountering a peaceful mind. Just as years after this incident, we are moving from our sinful sickness, our thoughts of our sinful sickness, my thought about my knee, to the actuality of what sin and sickness is, the actuality, the direct experience of it. Not framed by our thoughts about, not that there's anything wrong with these thoughts. In some ways, we need them. I mean, I need to assess my sickness. And I need to do what I need to do to address what common sense says to address. But remember, this is spiritual practice. It's not the knee that's the problem. If it's not one thing, it's going to be another. And if you don't encounter that in your body and mind yet, just wait. But I suspect you have encountered that in your body and mind. So it's not the problem that's the problem. 
we're the problem, (laughs) how we understand the problem, our thoughts about the problem, our distance from the problem. What is the problem? Where is the problem? As practitioners, we're working to see for ourselves what does it mean to have a mind of peace? What does it mean to be ill, yet be free of illness? We have to go beyond and deeper than thoughts about illness and feelings about illness, which is no simple thing. Our thoughts change, and they're deeply shaped by our fears, our hopes. I mean, I'm disappointed. I keep coming back to my knee because basically the only reason I'm able to sit here is I'm taking some anti-inflammatory medicine, which makes my stomach hurt, which, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But none of that's a problem except in my mind. I made the decision to do that, so I'll do that. There's no problem. What does that have to do with my knee? Where is my pain when I direct myself towards it, when I investigate it? Did you notice the word exhaustively in the translation of the Bodhidharma koan? I've searched my mind exhaustively. but have not been able to find it. That's one translation. Did you notice in Waku saying, bring me your sin and I will absolve you. And the koan says, after a long pause, Sinkin said, when I look for my sin, I cannot find it. After a long pause. How long? Five minutes? Period of Zazen, next Oksan, a month, a year, five years, ten years. How long? How long will you search? What will you stake on that searching? If you wish to see with the same eyes and the same mind as Bodhidharma, as Weku, as Senge. You must search for your mind, for your sickness, for your anxiety, for your blindness, for my knee pain. Whatever it is you have proclaimed as real through our endless misunderstanding through our endless fear and pain. And in my searching, in our searching, bring it forth. Bring it forth. Bring yourself forth. This exhaustive searching is always in search of something which does not exist as a thing. It's not that there isn't pain and there isn't suffering, but what is it? What fundamentally is it? And that's what spiritual practice is inviting us to explore. There's lots of ways we can address different kinds of sickness. Lots of ways we can and do address anxiety and fear and all the ways we're upset and our physical ailments and some things we can't fundamentally address from the healing side, except spiritually. We give power to a fixed idea of ourself, and perpetually, this mirage empowered by our stories, by our fairy tales about ourselves, that we say about our sickness and our fears. We give that power. And we can rest in our accustomed energies of duality, presenting as dullness or excitement, 
Either one works. I'm dull. I'm sleepy. I'm excited. Fine. Uses energy and distracts herself. We're searching for ourself in some form. In some form that confirms us. Sickness confirms us. Isn't that interesting? Sin confirms us. Anxiety confirms us. We have endless ways to confirm ourselves. But it's a mirage. But don't believe me. Look for yourself. Bring it forth. I want to see it. Well, I want to see what I create. I hope you want to see what you create. So you're practicing your breath, perhaps. Are you aware there is no such thing as your breath? Think about that. There's no such thing as your breath. You're trying to be the breath. There's no breath to be. You're practicing moo. There's no such thing as moo. You're practicing this moment of awareness. There's no such thing as this moment of awareness. It's empty of any being. So where does that leave you? Where are you going to go from there? It's interesting. Senkin wrote the Faith and Mind Sutra that I think we're all familiar with. And really it says exactly what Vilma Makurti is saying in that sutra. How should a bodhisattva console another bodhisattva who is sick? Those who do not live in the single way fail in both activity and passivity. Assertion and denial. Fail in both inner and outer. Doesn't matter. To deny the reality of things is to miss the reality. One side. To assert their em- the emptiness of things is to miss the reality. The other side. Kind of taking away your ground, isn't it? Taking away what we rest on. Taking away everything we think and our personality and our outraged anger and anything else that we stake our being on. The more you talk and think about it, the further astray you wander from the truth. Stop talking and thinking. Stop it. And there's nothing you will not be able to know. Isn't that interesting? Stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you will not be able to know. And to me what's most interesting is there's nothing special or extraordinary about Waku and Sengen's stories of awakening. If we can see into the nature of the self for, our, for ourselves, of our sins, of our sickness, of our mind, we see for ourselves our own true nature and we'll see that is ungraspable. We can stop grasping it. We can stop making things. We don't have to make things anymore. It's all whole and complete. It's been that way from the beginning. We don't have to make. No matter how we maneuver and try and grasp it, our mind is originally pure and complete. It's just the way it is. We don't have to do anything else except realize that mind, pure and complete. So Senkin says in his teaching, the great way is without difficulty. Just avoid picking and choosing. And he concludes his teaching with, the way is beyond language. For in it there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today. It's beyond language and thoughts. Kazan ends this koan with a poem. He says, carefully observe the realm 
with their, where there are no traces or tracks. Carefully observe that. Yet don't hide there. There he goes again. <laughs> See it, but don't hide. Essential emptiness has no inside or outside. Sin and virtue leave no traces there. Mind and Buddha are fundamentally thus. The Dharma and Sangha are clear. Which brings up a brief story. I mean, how do we deal with our sickness? How do we actually in life deal with our sickness? Some time ago, a while ago, I was pretty sick. I was actually in residency at the time, and I, uh, I, I was sick, and there was some possible danger of the sickness. And so the health professional who examined me um, did a test called nystagmus, in which they shine, shine a light into your eyes and move it back and forth. And it's a, a test of your nervous system, because, it, I mean, they're shining a light into your brain. Um, and under certain circumstances, um, there's a very strong reaction. So this person's in front of me shining a light. They didn't exactly know what they were doing, but the result was I projectile vomited all over them <laughs> <laughs> due to that test. <laughs> so what about that? Am I sick or am I not sick? Am I vomiting or am I not vomiting? Where do you find yourself? (laughs) Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org slash media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. Learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash Project. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O. J-E-C-T.